HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host, and today's show is being sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, you can go to www.hurstranch.com. Well, that's a nice intro into today's topic because here is a company, Hearst Ranch, who's been raising this natural free-range grass-fed beef since 1865 their farms have been running. And and that's really surprising in today's big industry, kind of factory-produced food world that we live in. Uh, and what we're seeing is, I guess you could call it a revolt, <laughs> or for some people it's revenge, but um, back to natural foods, back to local foods, and a movement called being a locavore, a locavorism uh, sprung up, and that's, well, we'll learn more about that, but simply trying to eat locally whenever possible, and it does so much for the environment. Today, to help us learn more, a lot of people say, well, yeah, that's great. What's a loca- what, what is a locavore, and, and how, how do I be a locavore, and isn't that awfully difficult? We have somebody to answer all those questions and to help us find our way, and that is Amy Kotler, the author of The Locavore Way. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. Amy, you have been a chef and a caterer and a cooking instructor and, and recipe developer and cookbook author. What... How did you, well, it, I can imagine it's natural <laughs> being in all those things, but what really turned the corner for you as far as becoming a locavore? Well, um, you know, it started out for me a long time ago. Uh, because I'm a chef, or I became a chef probably <laughs> the other way around, right. because uh, uh, taste and smell are my strongest senses, and I woke up to the taste of local food very early on when I was a kid, and my parents took me to a farm in the Catskills, and I tasted the eggs, and 
I, I just remember to this day thinking, this is something different. This, I'm tasting the life in this. I saw the chickens out there. I saw the farmer on his tractor. So I was eating the food in context, and it tasted better. So the combination of the taste with the experience um, really drove me. Then later on, I became, when I became a chef, it, you know, it, it didn't take a lot for me to realize that I could make beautiful towering infernos of soft, beautifully sauced things, but unless the food source itself was terrific... Why bother? That's right. Yeah. So I really came of age as a chef at the same time the farmer's markets really started, you know, gearing up and really kicking in. And um, the combination of gardening and understanding fresh from there and going to the farmer's market really uh, started me focusing on fresh local foods. Well, and you have then during that time relocated and you live in the beautiful verdant hills of the Berkshires, right? Yes, absolutely. And I thought, you know, I moved to the country. I thought, oh, I'm going to be, you know, Mother Earth. I'm going to be close <laughs> to the earth and, you know, all these great farm fresh stuff. And, and the disconnect here was just as obvious as it was in the city. Uh, you know, it was August and, you know, I was eating a, a hamburger with a tomato on it. And we could talk about the hamburger another time. But the <laughs> tomato itself was from uh, Florida, you know, polyethylene ripened cardboard tomato, which has become kind of the poster child of the a local food revolution, and it was it was August, and, and tomatoes were dropping off the vine right next door, and the disconnect was so oh. palpable to me that it really moved me to want to do something more. That's right. Well, could you then give us a definition of what, well, how you have defined for your book, how you have defined a locavore? Well, I like to keep it simple. Anybody who seeks out and savors food grown close to home, grown, produced, or raised close to home, so and as close to home as you can get. And so I don't like to make too many rules because I think that we live in a, a world where we're told a lot about what to eat and what not to eat. I'd rather make it easy for people to do the right thing by buying things as local as they can. Yeah. Well, in a lot of this movement for eating eating fresh, eating seasonally, eating locally, a lot of people get it confused also. As you mentioned, even in your book, I noticed a lot of people get it confused with organic, the whole organic movement thing. And how, how do you keep that separate, and how do you explain that to people, that, the difference? Well, it's a very good question, and it's, it's the most common question I get, because I think we all are kind of confused. And my generation, I'm a post-war baby boomer, I think has made it more difficult, because in co-ops uh, particularly, we've really focused all our energy on organic as a good thing. And it's really, unfortunately, not so simple. Mm. Uh, basically, um, organic, it's a certified organic is a codified legal term uh, that the federal government uses for a way to raise food. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but just buying organic food, um, you know, doesn't tell you a lot. It tells you, yes, it was raised without using certain inputs that are destructive to the environment. That's well. But it doesn't tell you if it's fresh. It could be from an agribusiness huge organic farm 3,000 miles away, as it often is. And also, um, a lot of the uh, large organic farms are really pushing for loosening of those standards. And some of our small, sustainable farms who are using good methods in growing may go beyond organic. They may be biodynamic. They may decide not to become certified mm -hmm. for the expense or because they know their customers and have a real relationship with them. And so I, what I ask in the book is for, I, I provide you with the information and then say, go out and use your brains. Because I think that if people look beyond organic certification and really get to know their farmers at farmers markets and farm stands and CSAs, um, and not just look for organic as a stamp of approval, they'll do a lot better. They'll eat healthier, they'll support the local economy and the environment, 
and not just look at organic as a be-all and end-all. So organic and local together is great. Well, that, Sustainably I think, raised and local is great. That's great. And the advice that you give is, I mean, it is so good. And I'm, what you've just said is really good. And then also the tips throughout the book are so helpful. I mean, you really empower you. people. You empower them to to, to to actually do it, to go out and and eat locally and, and wisely and um, and seasonally as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, that's great. You you know, if you live in the country, if you live near farms, you can go and visit the farms. What if I live in the middle of the city? Well, actually, I think in some ways it's really easy right in the middle of the city. You don't have to pop in a car and go somewhere. Um, I think that the city, particularly down where you are, but certainly all of, all the cities, uh, and especially the major ones, have some of the best farmer's markets um, in the world. They're right. just fabulous. And so nobody's got an excuse. <laughs> they can yeah. go to the farmer's market and pick up really fabulous local fresh stuff. Well, the irony of it is that I think that sometimes the city, it's even easier in the city. I have a country home um, a couple hours north of the city, and I look around for the farmer's markets. I say, where are the farmer's where markets? They? And yeah. they say, oh, well, we're all at Union Square in New York City. So yeah, I know, oh, no, isn't that terrible? <laughs> so well, I can yeah. almost eat better when I come home to the city than I can up there, except so, for mean, growing my own, right? Yeah, growing your own, exactly. I mean, th- there's also CSA both in the city and the country, there's an incredible network for community-supported agriculture farms where you uh, put the money forward in the beginning of the season and you get a share of the harvest all, all season long. And um, that's another great way to buy local. That's kind of a no-brainer in that it comes, you know, you pick it up or it comes to you once a week and you don't really have to decide. You have to really be interested in cooking because right. you get well, what you get. Well, that's exactly true. And that was something I wanted to bring up. A lot of people say, well, doesn't eating locally cost me a lot more money and don't I really have to know how to cook more and, and do more cooking? And yes, you do have to cook more if you're going to, like, you know, belong to a CSA. But describe, um, CSA started, oh, back in, I think, the late 70s or 80s, early yeah, 80s? Yeah, you're, you're right, right around there, yep, yeah. early 80s. And they started in, um, you know, I was really fortunate because um, I had already been a chef and worked as a chef and was very interested in fresh food. And I kind of fell in with this brat pack of agricultural progressives. And one of them was Robin Van Ann, who's kind of the mama of the Uh CSA movement in North America. So I really got to see sort of at ground zero how they work. And the idea is to capitalize the farmer at the beginning of the season when they have to shell out all this money uh, and take this great risk and to take the risk with the farmer so that um, you're really sharing... Um, the risk together, and you get a share of the bounty during the season, and um, it's about as close as you can get to knowing where your food is, comes from, because right. you get to know the farmer, and in New York, um, and in many cities, there's also a great, um, there's a great system for this, where they drop off at, you know, neighboring co-ops, and all, all kinds of places. Uh, there are also um, work uh, CSAs. Where you where can you actually can, participate in the farm. Yeah, actually, and, and yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, but, you know, there's no question that you get, um, you know, you get a lot of greens at the end of the season. Uh, you get a lot of tomatoes in August. And um, a lot of turnips in the winter. <laughs> so you kind of have to be smart about what to do with it, you right. know? Well, that and was, I, and I know that they've gotten, I know that they have gotten uh-huh. better and they've educated people more. And, and you have to go out and find a few friends to, you know, to, to go together. I remember in the early 80s joining one of the early CSAs in Westchester. And I had a couple of young kids. And so I figured this is this is good. I'll teach them to you know eat locally and eat good produce. But the thing is, is you would you didn't get to pick. You know, if it was you know it would be divided up between ten people after the big bounty came in at Hunts Point. And 
I remember having so much kohlrabi, I didn't know what to do well, with Well, you know, you make, you make a good point, because farmers have gotten a lot better. It takes a lot of skill to be a good CSA farmer, because you have to be so diversified, and you have to really pace yourself in terms of what comes in. But these days, you can buy a half share for a single person. That, can, that was my question. I mean, it was great yeah. for a family, so a single person can actually well, you participate. Know, it, it depends on the CSA, but uh-huh. most CSAs have small shares. Um, that and some CSAs even have, if you have trouble um, paying for them, have um, work shares where you can do some work in exchange. Um, so uh, CSAs have come a long way, and they often they often also give you some choice now, where you can take you know a kohlrabi and a turnip, or you can take a carrot and a beet. You know, yeah. um, I uh, you know I'll trade so, you two turnips for a carrot. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's some of what goes on too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, um, and aside from that, for people who don't do a lot of cooking, they you know they sit at a desk for too many hours and they are busy all the time I mean they still have to shop for food so they there are things that they can do as well when they shop for food right well you know I always I always when I think about you know all of my readers and I try to you know I cook every day but a lot of people cook once a week at most Mm -hmm. and so I try to always think about my sister who's a career woman in New York and loves good food but doesn't do a lot of cooking she works a lot of hours and uh, there's a lot, a lot she can do. First of all, you can pick up whole food that doesn't need to be prepared. I mean, she can all her during the season. There's no reason all her fruit shouldn't be local. She has a farmer's market on Sunday, right on the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. She can pick up her strawberries right there. Her apples in the fall. Um, and also, of course, pre-mixed mescaline greens have made it so easy for everyone. That's right. Um, so you don't have to be a fabulous, uh, you know, cook to do this. Also, eating out. Right. Um, really tapping into eating out with restaurants that are eco-sensitive, that really care about using local farm fresh Well, you know, there were some early early chefs who championed this movement, and Peter Hoffman of Savoy and Dan Barber of Blue Hill. In fact, you have comments from both of them, and I, I, I'm not, their names sprang to my mind when I well, first thought names. of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then here we record right here out of um, Roberta's restaurant, and they are so local, the produce is grown on the roof and in the backyard. That's <laughs> so very cool. Can't I mean, get any so more local cool than that. Chefs. Yeah. I mean, just doing great things, and you're right, and right, right, you're in Brooklyn, right? Right. Yeah, Brooklyn is a hotbed of, <laughs> of chefs really doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think chefs, as you said, you were chefs just automatically gravitate towards using what's fresh and what's local. You know, if you're going to have make good food. Well, I mean, other than foie gras, but that. Could, well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, mean, I think too. that to a certain extent, you're true. Actually, what I should say is what you're saying should be true. Should be, right. Uh, should be true, and you know, you're absolutely right. But I think that you know, having trained chefs, there's no question that we're really being, you know taught in the direction of cheap, convenient food. You pick up the phone, you go on the, you go online, you make your one order, the Cisco truck pulls in, they dump it all. Yeah, it's it's yeah. more trouble for a chef in a restaurant to do the right thing and serve really great, fresh food. Well, so you, what with this book, you have empowered people as, as diners and consumers right. to, to taste the difference, and you can definitely taste the difference. Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing that I, I think people forget, too, I mean, they go into a restaurant and they think nothing about asking the waiter what's the special tonight instead they could ask the waiter what's local on the menu tonight i mean that's that is one way if you're just going to go out to dinner you can you can take the initiative and find out if there's local 
um, well, you're absolutely products. right. I mean, and, and the fact is the waiter may not always know, in which case they better go back to the kitchen and find out. And, and then, then, right. <laughs> and then next time when the next person comes in, they'll know. And so we're really training our service people to, you know, communicate what comes from the kitchen. That's right. Well, and it's, it is. You're right. Training them. It's all about education. Education for our palates. Education about, well, about how things grow and how things are raised. And you said something so important. You were a, you were a kid when you first had your eyes awakened to uh, to how things tasted different when they were local. And you mentioned also in the book, if you go to visit a farm, take your kids to the market. Take your kids. I mean, it, you can't start early enough, and then the kids will just grow up that way. You know, it's absolutely true because you know uh, things may be may be a goner for my generation, but it's re- we really depend on the next generation and the youth of America to really uh, bear the torch for fresh local food, and if they don't, we'll have no choice. The corporate, large corporations will decide everything we eat and what's put into that soil, and will continue and perpetuate a system that's really broken from bad labor practices to um, polluting delivery mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. So when every time we buy something, we make that choice, and if we don't really teach our kids about fresh local food, We've done them a great disservice. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back from that break, um, what I would like to do is um, talk about why we should be a locavore and how this is important. We'll be back in a few minutes. We're back with Amy Kotler, um, the author of The Locavore Way, and we've been talking about eating locally, uh, trying to trying to be locavores. It's, it is a challenge, don't you think? I mean, for a lot of people, perhaps not for you, but I mean, it is, it's a challenge. Sometimes you're just too tired and the lazy way is just stop by the, the local big chain supermarket and plop something in your cart. Absolutely. It's now, for me, for, for me as well. I mean, this time of year, of course, not so much so, because <laughs> yeah. the world is bursting, but, you know, in the winter when I'm, you know, scr- scrounging around for cheese and maple syrup and eggs and things like that, I do have to make an extra effort. Yeah, you do. And, and now the, the su- is better. Well, the supermarket, <laughs> yeah, the su- well, that's just it. The supermarkets are getting a little better about it, too, because they, oh, they, they realize that they're going to lose a market share if they don't and I, participate. And I definitely would would encourage people to look for local food everywhere, you know, uh, become sleuths and really look in, in, in supermarkets as well. Right. Talk to your uh, the produce director. Talk to the supermarkets and ask them if they, gee, how come there's a farm down the road? Can't you carry some of their items? I mean, there are certain union rules, I know, um, and distributors' rules, but they do. Yeah. They do. Mm-hmm. Well, we talk, We know it's better for us. We know that if we eat seasonally, we eat locally, the food tastes so much better. And obviously, it's healthier for us. What about, I mean, but why, 
why is it really a responsible thing to do? Let's address that one. Well, um, and I would add to what you said. With you know, obviously, we talked about the ple- you talked about the pleasure and the health and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I would add to that package that sort of personal side um, the connection people make in sharing their bounty with friends and embracing the flow of nature. Um, but to go beyond that to sort of a more political look at that, um, obviously we're talking about not just the health of ourselves, but the health of our, of our planet. Because mm-hmm. local sustainable farms, and when I say sustainable farms, I mean farms that sustain uh, the earth they rather don't than deplete, deplete all the, right. and use uh, sustainable methods, um, which are healthier. Obviously, we keep them alive and we keep the earth alive. So there's, uh, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer. Um, and of course, and that's you know that's water, air, land, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, um, it's also about local economies. Um, certainly, when we spend our dollars, whether it's with organic food or any other kind of food, when we spend our dollars um, with crops that come from large corporate um, headquarters, where the money goes into large co- uh, corporate headquarters miles and miles away, we're doing little to replenish our local and regional economies. If I buy from a farm uh, near me or you buy from a farm being in the city from a market down there, your regional economy is being enhanced because you're employing local people who in turn hire local people, etc. And that's so important. And that's really important. And small sustainable farms are more likely, although not always, but more likely to uh, employ people using fair labor practices. And that's something people really want to think about when they uh, when they eat food because um, agricultural workers are often not treated well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the safety of the earth, the safety of us, um, the safety of our local economies, of course, are all important. And also our um, our open working landscape. I mean, the way I like to think about it is, you know, I've lived in the city, I've lived in the country, and I've lived in the suburbs. And in each one of those places, you need to have a combination of living situations and open space in order for them to be healthy. So they need a little bit of open space. Obviously, in the city, it's going to be less. <laughs> but they need affordable housing, you know, affordable housing, luxury housing, um, open landscape, and working landscape. And now, even in the city, we're getting some working landscape, as you were saying, people growing growing on their rooftops or, right. um, or in, and in community gardens, which are so important. So in order to get a... Um, a diverse landscape, part of that is really our working landscape. And when we preserve our farms by keeping people employed by buying their food, we help that open landscape, uh, that working landscape, rather, uh, vital. That's right. And there are a couple other points. And one might wonder, well, my show ostensibly is about topics of culinary history. And Ah, that's where I'm going. <laughs> that, this, couldn't be, this couldn't be more appropriate. I mean, that's years right. ago, that's the only way one could eat was locally okay. I mean, there was there were no trucking methods and you know shipping of uh blueberries from chile in the you know an off season and the mom and pop produce stands were everywhere and of course they couldn't compete then when big industry rolled in they couldn't compete with those big chain right. grocery stores and and there went the local as you said the local economy suffered because of it and yes so what and also what we found as you mentioned it was i could just visualize it Taking a trip and going cross-country to some other place you've never been, but seeing the same three-mile strip of big-box chain we stores know just what and it looks restaurants. Like, right? right. I said, why did I have to go anywhere? This looks just like home, you know, the same well, place that I came from. And your show really addresses the idea of our culinary heritage. Cul- and, exactly. And that's really, um, you know, both in rural areas and not, our culinary heritage is part of who we are. Right. 
And, um, and that comes from, in so many instances, our farms, whether it's uh, old cooking traditions um, and farm life itself. When that's obliterated, we really obliterate part of our identity. Right. Well, and that, that does occur for a number of reasons, too. People do move about these days with employment and transfers that's like right. they never did, um, you know, 50, 100 years ago. They always stayed in one small area, and now... You know, we think nothing of picking up and moving to Nashville because that's where the job goes. And so people don't know about those traditions. They don't know about the culinary heritage of those areas. And, um, you know, and there is, there really is such diversity in, um, in the past practices of, as you mentioned, clam bakes in the East and um, the barbecues down South and, and just, you know, the different ethnic foods that popped up wherever the settlements were. That's something beautiful to try to keep alive. It doesn't happen because the population changes. But if we do keep to a more, I think, more local um, food system, that it keeps that those things. It keeps those things alive. Um, I think it does, and it also it refreshes and changes them too. In that, uh, for example, in my area, we have a lot of Southeast Asian immigrants, uh-huh. and so they've brought in some of their own culinary traditions and. Um, and they're farming, you know, crops that we're not as familiar with, and they're bringing their own traditions, which are traditional from where they come from, maybe not so much here, but they enrich our world. Absolutely. With, yeah, which yeah. is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, what about, we back to winter, I mean, because we can, we can address these other challenges and trying to keep local, keep local practices alive and keep the heritage, the culinary heritage um, going. But when winter comes, again, I bring that up. I mean, if you don't, if you live in a tiny apartment and you don't have a root cellar, what do we do in the winter? Winter is tough. Forget belonging to a CSA, just shopping in general and trying to buy locally. That's a tough one. Well, I think it is certainly in the, you know, it's very easy for people in California to say, you know. Yeah, well. (laughs) Well, here we are in the reality check, and I live in New England, so things are even worse here than where you are. Um, but there's no question that there are ways to make local food the core of much of your diet. Now, does that mean I never touch a green salad in the winter? No, I'm not a fundamentalist. But I think that it does require some foresight. Certainly for those people who live out of the city, there are ways to, um, to root cellar that are not rocket science. I mean, from, from simple ice chest to a cold closet, and mm-hmm. I do go over that in my book. Um, there are also some CSAs that do have winter shares. And sometimes they will store the food for you. I mean, oh, I have nice. a winter mm-hmm. share that was stored for me in Hudson, and I just picked it up like once a month. Um, but beyond that, for, 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 for everyday people, <laughs> um, certainly, um, you know, simple things like freezing. There's no question that, you know, in September or October, um, it's great to make things like ratatouille and all these great things with the crop and freeze them in small portions. That's one way. But another way is to really look at what are our core local foods in the winter, and they are cheese, eggs, a huge one, local eggs, mm-hmm. um, eggs, certainly meat, uh, maple syrup, um, and of course root vegetables, and uh, you know things like potatoes and also winter squashes. Um, those form the base of our winter. Uh, cabbages would be another from the base of our winter diet. Um, and does that, you know, again, that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't eat anything else, but <laughs> a, a salad of grated carrots and, and, um, and cabbage uh, with a nice vinaigrette in it, you know, you know oil and vinegar, garlic, and a um, little bit of mustard, salt and pepper with some feta cheese sprinkled on top, local feta cheese, um, is a really nice winter salad. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So um, you don't have to be a chef. 
and you don't have to go too crazy. I, I do eat, I have to admit that I do eat a lot of butternut squash in the winter. Yep, yep. And I've discovered <laughs> so a lot of ways to do, uh, use them. You do have to get a little imaginative. Right. I roast a lot of vegetables. Well, what, what are your opinions about, um, one, let me, I'll give the example first. Uh, one of the local farmers upstate where I shop, um, to keep himself alive during the winter when he's not, um, not preparing and his seeds and, and getting ready with plants, he has developed quite a beautiful hothouse. Um, yeah, well, a, more and more of that's going a on. A greenhouse, right. So he grows for the residents. He grows, um, you know, small greens and and uh, things that we can only usually get in the summertime. And I think that's wonderful. It keeps him in business. And it is it is local in as much that it comes from his greenhouse. And, uh, and it tastes great to me. Well, there is definitely more and more of that going on. It's not easy to do. No. You have to be a pretty skilled farmer to do it well and make a profit at it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I have a similar thing near me. I have somebody who grows spinach, which is even easier to grow in the, in the winter um, than, you know, than salad greens. And uh, more and more people are doing that. It's, it's, it's a great way. If you can buy it, it's fabulous. Well, and then we have all these, the vertical gardening and the, and the um, hydroponic gardening, uh, things that don't require uh, the the seasons that we that we rely on. I mean, I happen to be really gung ho on stuff that's, that's in the earth only because the flavor can't be beat right. from a chef. Right. But it's a great solution uh, in many ways, as long as it's done in a sustainable way and doesn't use up so much energy that it sort of defeats its point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the jury is is, is somewhat out on that. But uh, but a lot of people, a lot of smart people, are working on that. Of course, there's also um, you know meat. And um, in the winter, I, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, but in the summer, I don't eat much meat at all. In the winter, I tend to eat more meat because mm-hmm. I buy part of an animal. Um, <laughs> and I buy, you know, I buy half of a pig and a quarter of a, a, quarter of a, ste- of a, of a cow, and, um, and I, have a, you know, I have a big freezer, and I eat out of that. Yeah. Well, that's something we didn't talk about, because you, did, you do describe the, um, I guess, meat CSAs, in essence, um, sharing as you say, sharing, going in with a couple of people and buying part of an animal or a meat CSA. Could you talk oh, about yes, that? Well, yes, the meat CSAs make it even easier so that you can buy, you know, something family size um, or, you know, you can they have a drop-off, let's say, once a month um, of a reasonable amount of frozen meat uh, that's sustainably raised, that doesn't have poisons in it, uh, that you can hold your head up and say, I like meat and, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't done anything to hurt the environment. Um, and uh, it takes a little bit of an adjustment to cook with um, grass-fed beef, but it you know can be done. Um, and certainly, of course, there's chicken and turkey. And, and when you, you say know, an adjustment, that's because you, the the cooking it um, not as long cooking it briefly. Well, then. yeah, it's you, you're pretty much onto it. It's um, it's not doesn't have the marbleization we see in, mm-hmm. in beef that's raised on grain, and so it's leaner and it's not as marbleized. So. It has to either be kind of seared and cooked rare, or it has to be cooked very slow and long. And right. sometimes, sometimes people add fat, uh, unless of course it's hamburger, and then they grind fat into it. Um, because if, you know, half the cow is, can be made into hamburger and stew. <laughs> so um, it's a good sustainably way uh, way to eat is to really eat, if you eat the whole animal. You, you eat a lot of you know stew and and, and burger meat. Well, and you, the burger meat is incredible. And you figure, I mean, you say you eat a lot more meat in the winter, and you don't eat much wheat, meat in the summer. <laughs> We can call this a balanced diet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's also, um, you know, and I haven't got, didn't get into that too much in the book, um, but there are beans and grains. I'm a member of a, a bean and grain CSA, so I do get um, some, lo- some local beans and grains. That's mm-hmm. not always easy to find in the Northeast. It's easier in the West. 
Um, but um, it's, it's a challenge, and just like with the beginning of uh, CSAs, they haven't all gotten it down to a science. That sometimes they're not as clean as they could be or, you know, you know in terms of um, really processing them properly. They're learning. Right. Um, but uh, it's been interesting. I've been making some bread out of local... Uh, local wheat, which is kind of fun. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, yes, it does take a more of an effort, and it is, there are challenges in being a locavore, but it is worth the effort, and everything that you will taste, I'm sure people will find it tastes so much better, and especially now, it's it, it's a wonderful thing to talk about because, you know, approaching here in the, the summer season and we're getting into things coming into the market, it's something that is enticing to people to say, okay, I can go to the market, I can get local foods. Try it during the winter as well. Try to try to do whatever you can. Absolutely. And ask, I mean, right? think about mushrooms and yeah. you know, uh, unlikely things. Um, and you can't you can do it in the winter. And as I said, eggs are are always a great fallback. Uh, it's easy this time of year. It's pretty easy. But you know, if you think about even if five percent of the population this time of year shopped more locally, we'd be. For more local farms, we'd be supporting a ton more farms. That's right. That's right. And we'll see our landscape change not only in the farms and the and the farmland, but the the stores that are selling it. And it'll be a, we'll bring back biodiversity and diversity. In, well, I'm in glad the, you mentioned biodiversity because yeah. that is a, an important point. We yes, don't want to be did. stuck, so we only have one kind of cucumber and one kind of tomato. And uh, it's it's wrong for all kinds of reasons. And uh, yes. certainly, our farms bring back. And you know, you you deal a lot with historical stuff and. Certainly, the, the amount of diversity in our food supply has really diminished radically, and um, the local food movement has brought back that that diversity. Yes, that's right. And there are such. We talked with um, Amy Goldman a couple weeks ago from Seed Savers, and uh, there are a lot of places where people who do plant gardens can get heirloom seeds and and learn how to save their own seeds. And that's right, that's and, and really grow historical uh, fruits and vegetables, right. which is kind yeah. of a thrill. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. And if anyone needs help, you've made it so easy for us to, to eat locally. And if anyone feels they need more help, just look at Amy's book, The Locavore Way. It and is... I, have, I have a food blog that people can get oh, once a week. Okay. They can get a recipe that uses uh, whatever is in season. So and what is your, what's your blog? It's amycotler.com. It's right up there. C-O-T-L-E-R. There you go. Okay. Thank well, you thank so you so much. And thank you. And I want to thank our engineer, Nat Wiener, and our executive producer, Jack Inslee. Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past.